0: morning. So can I pray for you, Brian, before we start? Please. Man, Father, I am just so grateful for this man, grateful for all the men that have come this summer to preach God's word, grateful for the work that they put in, grateful for a lot of Wednesday mornings at 6 30, drinking cheap coffee and getting to talk through uh, scripture together and delve deeply into your word. Thankful for just the fellowship, the brotherhood and sisterhood in that time and the We've been able to gather together and I pray this morning uh, for Brian that you fill him with your spirit, for all you're going to call him to do and say this morning, uh, God, you give him great freedom, great comfort as he's here uh, visiting our church that he'd feel like he's among family today. For everything you say, would be honoring and glorifying you and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. It is good to be here. Have you, uh, have you found yourself questioning things that you never used to question? See, when I survey the cultural landscape in America, what I see is I see us moving along a spectrum from belief to disbelief. See. We used to believe the things that we would hear on the nightly news or read in the newspaper. We used to believe that those things were true. We believed in this thing called journalistic integrity. Now we sort of roll our eyes at the very idea. We used to believe that our health care systems had our best interest at heart. Now we sort of believe that our healthcare systems are basically bought and paid for by Big Pharma. We used to believe that our governing officials were public servants. Now we kind of believe that our, our governing officials are more like self servants. In our schools, once upon a time, we believed that our schools were actually interested in educating our kids. And now we've become skeptical that our schools are more interested in indoctrinating our kids. See, I bring this up because in a relatively short amount of time, America has lost faith in its institutions. We've lost faith in our institutions. For example, how many of us are going to think twice the next time someone tells us to put on a mask or take a vaccine? How many of us are going to think twice the next time Congress says to the American public that we need to get involved in a foreign war? How many of us are going to think twice the next time the presidential election results are announced? Or how about the next time we catch a headline having to do with police brutality or climate change? Can we believe these things are true anymore? See, my point in this is that we have been inundated with partial truth lies, a.k.a. Fake news. And fake news or partial truth lies has a way of destabilizing faith. That's the big point this morning, is that partial truth lies have a way of destabilizing faith. And I think that what we're experiencing now in our time has a lot to do with what John is writing about here in 1 John 1,900 years ago. He's dealing with partial truth lies. He's dealing with fake news. Because something has happened where this information has come into the church, and it's caused many in the church to doubt the truth about the gospel, about who Jesus is, and what Jesus did, and why that matters to us. If you take a glance at 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, you'll see that John writes, Who is the liar? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, John writes, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then here in our text this morning, chapter 5 and verse 6, John writes, This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. You see, John is addressing partial truth lies. These things that we're reading here, he's not just dropping in truth into the world out of heaven, as though it just—it has no context. He's speaking into a cultural context. He has a reason for saying, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There were people who were denying that Jesus is the Christ. There were people who were denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. There were even people who were denying that the death of Christ on the cross was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Partial truth lies. You see, a kind of deconstruction had taken place in the church. And now John, being a good pastor, is very carefully and very methodically reconstructing the truth. So let's go ahead and look a little bit closer into this word. I'm going to begin here uh, with Three verses, 6, 7, and 8. And these are going to serve us as a springboard for the rest of this text. When you look at this, this text here, 6 through 12 of chapter 5, repetition really sticks out. There's repetition. There's a, there's a single word or a word variant that is actually repeated eight different times in your ESV translation in this one paragraph. Can you see it? If anybody sees it, does anybody want to say it out loud? Testimony, Testimony, testify, testify, testimony, testimony, right? Eight different times. There's a point being made. It's not difficult to identify a theme here. The purpose of testimony is to set forth the truth, it's to bring forth evidence to support the truth. That's what John is doing here. He is essentially putting the partial truth lies or the fake news on trial along with its liars. I'll read it aloud here, these first first three verses of our section. This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. All right, we're going to need a little bit of context here, right? Talking about water, talking about blood, talking about testimony, we're talking about the Spirit, we're talking about agreement. What is going on here? Let me depart just for a moment here to give you a quick lesson in interpreting the Bible. It's important. When you read the Word, let me encourage you to ask yourself three questions. Ask yourself first, what is the historical context? What is the historical context? What is the grammatical context? And what is the theological context? The historical context would be like, what is happening at this point in history? Politically, culturally, like what's going on? Is there sort of a, uh, an inside joke happening that everyone here is in on and they understand it, but because we don't live in their time, we're not quite getting it. And we see some of that happen here. What is the grammatical context? The grammatical context is like, what is actually happening on the page? This is a written communication. This talks about like, like how, do, how do words function within sentences and how do sentences function within paragraphs and then how do paragraphs fit together to form ideas. That's the grammatical context. And then there's the theological context. And it's like, okay, we believe as Christians that there is a unity of Scripture, that ultimately it is the Spirit of God who is the author of all Scripture because we read that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. So there's a unity from Genesis to Revelation. So the theological ideas are not going to be in contradiction with one another. So we want to try to understand, hey, is there a theological context going on here that maybe could be, we could be informed by some other part of Scripture? So those are some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves as we read the Word. And so I find, as I kind of use that as my guide, when I look at verses 7 and 8, I find a big clue. Verses 7 and 8, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. These three, three that testify. So it's like, okay, I ask myself, is there a a historical context here? Okay, so you do a little bit of legwork. Start doing a little bit of research, and suddenly you figure out, okay, this is significant, the testimony of three. This is bringing us back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. We're in the Old Testament. We're dealing now with Israel's civil law. God had given his people Israel judicial laws or a civil law to govern them as his nation in the world, okay? And, and Deuteronomy 19.15 says that the, the fact of a matter, when you're dealing with a, a, a court case, it must be established by at least two or three witnesses. Of course, the point being that multiple Witnesses bearing testimony to the truth establish credibility. You guys will remember a gruesome trial of O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson. I can't remember how old I was when this, uh, this murder took place, and the trial was so highly publicized. It's one of the most highly publicized court cases in American history. And I think there was something like 150 witnesses that were called to testify to the truth. So this is what's going on right here, is that that multiple witnesses here are establishing credibility. And John is pointing our attention to this. And so now... That, that helps us to understand something very important. It helps us to understand that John is speaking to the Jewish Christians in the church. See, by this time in the, in the late first century, around 85 or 90 AD, the church would have been well integrated with Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, okay? Jewish converts to Christ. And here in 1 John, John is sort of circling around the same themes over and over again. And he's carefully, again, he's carefully and methodically reconstructing the truth. And so he's pastoring these people into the way that they should go. And so on this particular lap, in this particular section, I think what John is doing is he's speaking to the Jewish Christians because there's something here that he needs to get to them. And so now knowing that, it helps to, helps to inform us about what else is happening in this text. So now when we start to look at the water and the blood through the lens of the Jewish eye, I think we we, we begin to ascertain the meaning here. So what is the water and what is the blood in the Old Testament in Jewish history? That's how we start to think about this. Well, first we see that John says, this is he who came. So if you're a Jew in the first century what, what might you be looking for here? Were you expecting someone to come? Absolutely. You would have been long waiting for the Messiah to come. That's what you've been waiting for, is God's Messiah. Waiting for God to send his Messiah. Someone like Moses, but greater than Moses. That's what you would have been waiting for. And so it's like, okay, so so now we've got... We've got Jesus being set up here, but he came by the water and the blood. So the water in the Old Testament is—it's more symbolic. There's like there's like think in terms of ritual purification. There's a cleaning going on here. It deals with holiness. We wash up before God, and the blood relates to the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus came by the water and by the blood, he's saying. So essentially, I think what John is trying to communicate to this early church is that by faith in Jesus Christ, your, sit, your filth is washed away, and you can come to God with a clean conscience. That's the water. This deals with holiness. And by faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and you are reconciled with God. That's the blood. And the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who testifies. John says, because the Spirit is the truth. And here, what John's doing is he's actually he's putting forth the third person of the Godhead, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and he's saying that it is the Spirit of God Himself who testifies to the truth. And how is it that the Spirit testifies? It's an internal, subjective testimony, John writes. The testimony is in you. So he's saying that it is the Spirit of God that actually confers that these things that I'm speaking to you are the truth, and the Spirit will confer it upon your mind and upon your conscience. And that's how this works. The Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came in the flesh, and that by faith in him we may have the forgiveness of sins and we may experience eternal life. So to summarize, there's false teaching going on, there's fake news, and it's made its way into the church, and it's made up of these partial truth lies that are threatening to subvert the true testimony about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why it matters to us. And to confront these partial truth lies, John reminds the church of five important things. First John reminds us that that Jesus was a historical person who came in the flesh Next, he says that, that Jesus is the Savior that God promised to send. That's the Messiah or the Christ. He reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. Jesus is deity. Fourth, John reminds us that Jesus' death was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. And finally, that those who believe in Jesus will have eternal Life. So I think that is the, the heart and soul of this text this morning, these, these few verses. Now I'd like to apply it to our lives. And I think that there are really two lessons that we can walk away with this morning. First, as I've mentioned a couple times, partial truth lies have a way of destabilizing faith. See, these ideas are this fake news that had made it into this first-century church. What's interesting about this is that they did not originate inside the church. They came from outside the church, and they made their way into the church. What we're talking about here are the roots of something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism has its origins from a famous philosopher named Plato, and Plato lived several hundred years before Christ even. And, and Plato, he, he, he envisioned God as the highest good, the highest good. Now, now, when you start to think that way, now suddenly Plato's thinking, okay, the physical matter, the flesh, matter itself must be evil. Because why? Because our bodies are decaying. And we die. So, how could that be good, the highest good, if we actually are going to die? Therefore, the spirit, the spirit must be the good, but the physical flesh must be evil. Now, you start to see the ideas that began to bind themselves to Christian doctrine and say that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. That's how this works. See, these ideas, they they were sort of floating around out there, these partial truth lies. And then they came into the church, and then they, they attached themselves to true Christian doctrine, and they created something new, something less than the truth, but still containing parts of the truth. It's called fake news. See, we sort of naively can go through life as Christians, looking for black and white. That's a lie. That's the truth. But that's not really the way it works. It's more like partial truths. And we have a really hard time discerning things sometimes. So then I ask myself, what type of false ideas are up and running in our culture, in our time, what kind of partial truth lies have pot- potentially made their way into the church today? I wonder if any come to your mind right now. I think maybe the first that came to my mind was this, this partial truth lie of same-sex marriage. See, what's the, what's the partial truth to this? It's that, it's that God is interested in faithful, monogamous relationships. And God is less interested in male and female sexes. See, that's that's what's up and running. See, because if we can just buy into the idea that God is mainly interested in faithful monogamous relationships, then we can permit male and male marriage and female and female marriage, because after all, God's really just interested in faithfulness. Well, here's one for you. How about the Enneagram? You know, the Enneagram, it's a personality profile, right? That's how it's pitched. But most people don't realize that the Enneagram has overtly satanic origins. Most people don't know that, right? Now, listen, I want to be very careful right now because I see a lot of young people here. And and if if you're interested in the Enneagram and you've, you've sort of been following that, I want to make it very clear: I have every intention of destroying it, but I do not want to ins- destroy you <laughs> along with it, OK? <laughs> but the, the Enneagram sort of it sort of latches onto this truth that says that we struggle with our sin, right? And it talks about the false self. So we do struggle with our sin. As Christians. But the Enneagram takes that and it says that we can actually achieve self realization, that we can be responsible for fulfilling, for fulfilling our potential as human beings. But as Christians, we understand that that's not the truth because it is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God that is sanctifying us and leading us into maturity in Christ. Or how about social justice? Remember, we're on the topic here of partial truth lies. Social justice. Well, I hate to break it to you, but if you're white, especially if you're a white man who's heterosexual, who's a Christian, you're racist. Or didn't you get that memo? Right? Because that's the social justice lie is that you're racist before you've ever said anything, thought anything, or done anything. And if you deny that fact, it just proves you're racist. Come on now. Or how about also part of the social justice movement? That the world is divided between the oppressed and the oppressor. So how does that work out? Where's the partial truth in that? Where's the lie? Well, see, the world is full of people who want to oppress other people. And the world is full of people who are being oppressed. But that is not the fundamental analysis of what is happening. In truth, the world is actually divided between those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and those who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. Need I even bring up COVID-19? Talk about partial truth lies and the destabilization of trust and faith. I would simply ask, how many aren't here right now because of that whole thing that we live through, that whole pandemic? Masks and distancing and should we meet? And what is love? And what is right before God? Right? Boy, we had a hard time with COVID. I serve as an elder over at Crossroads. And as I reflect on that whole pandemic, I think that COVID exposed the quality of our work. That's what I think about COVID. And I'm not sure how good it was, sad to say. We all have a long way to go. So fake news or partial truth lies, destabilize faith. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, the solution to partial truth lies is testimony testify that's the solution that's what we see here in first john john confronts the lies that have polluted the church's doctrine with the power of testimony he brings apostolic testimony and he brings god's testimony chapter 1 of first john john brings his own testimony if you look at acts chapter 2 you'll see peter's testimony if you look at acts chapter 26 you'll see paul's testimony look carefully they are bearing witness to the truth, about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why that matters to us. Did you know that the church is responsible for upholding the truth on the earth? Have you ever heard that before? Think about that. It comes out of First Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, that he calls the church the household of the living God. So now we're in God's family in Christ. But then he calls it a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar. These are construction terms. A pillar holds up weight. A buttress supports a wall. And of what? Of the truth. So testify to the truth. Christians testify wherever the truth is being threatened. Pick a section of the wall and stand on it. If you have vision for pro-life, anti-abortion, then go find that section of the wall and proclaim the truth. Stand on it. Defend it. In word and in deed. And when I say indeed, let your witness be strong. Let let, let, let the words that come out of your, your mouth be verified with the quality of your life that you practice the truth and that you love one another and then speak the truth out from out of God's word because God's word speaks to all of life. If it is religious freedom that you see eroding before our very eyes and the freedom of speech, then go and stand on that section of the wall And testify to the truth. If it is sex trafficking, sex slavery, sexual exploitation of any kind, testify to the truth. If it is marriage and family that we see being attacked, male masculinity, testify to the truth and always, always be ready to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Christian testimony is something that is kind of... I wonder how much we still have the purpose and meaning of Christian testimony. See, we talk a lot today about story. Our story, what's your story? And that's great, praise God. God is a great storyteller, he's the best, right? We're living in an epic right now. But when we tell our story, oftentimes our story is is is, is kind of like how God's grace met us on our journey through life. Again, praise God for how He met me on my journey through life and comforted me. But testimony is something specific. And oftentimes, I've noticed as I listen carefully to my brothers and sisters tell our story, I notice that it lacks testimony. A testimony must include three things if you're going to testify to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ: it must include who Jesus is, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. It must include what Jesus did. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus laid down his life for me. And why it matters for me. Because only in Christ and only by faith in him Will I receive forgiveness of my sins and inherit eternal life in Christ? That is what your testimony must include. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why it matters to us. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm so in awe of you for how your word speaks truth or how your word speaks truth into our lives all these years later. Lord, we have learned today that partial truth lies destabilize faith. Lord, our desire is to walk in the light of the truth. Our desire is to live it out by practicing the truth. Our desire is to love one another. And Father, I ask that as we do these three things that you would faithfully confer upon our conscience and upon our mind that we belong to you and that we have life in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.